Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, educator, and I'm your host. Shout out to retired Navy SEAL Dr. Kirk Parsley for introducing me to Dr. Dan Stickler and Michael Hamilton from the Parent Center for Human Potential a few years ago. It has been a really good two years working with them. So thanks again, Kirk. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area, who has integrated different somatic practices into his work, including structural integration. To learn more about Cosper, you can visit his website at www.cosperscafidi.com. Today's guest is Dr. Thomas Verney. Dr. Verney is a psychiatrist, writer, lecturer, and academic. He has previously taught at Harvard University, University of Toronto, York University, St. Mary's University, Minneapolis, and the Santa Barbara Graduate Institute. Dr. Verney is the founder of PPPANA, which is now the Association for Pre and Perinatal Psychology and Health, served as its president from 1983 to 1991. He was founding editor of the Pre and Perinatal Psychology Journal, of which he is presently associate editor. Dr. Verney is the author of The Secret Life of the Unborn Child with John Kelly, Pre Parenting with Pamela Weintraub. In total, he has written eight books, including the recently published Embodied Mind, and over 47 scientific papers. So, what do epigenetics, quantum biology, consciousness, the microbiome, hypnosis, out of body experiences, microtubules, and heart transplants have in common? There are topics Dr. Verney addresses in his new book, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. Dr. Verney shows how the human body is a complex adaptive system from the quantum level to the totality of the whole organism, contextualized in social and natural ecologies. Welcome, Dr. Verney. Thank you. So before we jump into your embodied mind hypothesis, Yes. Tell us how you got into pre and perinatal psychology and health. Oh my goodness, uh, that takes me back uh, <laughs> quite quite a while, uh, quite a quite a long time, I should say. Well, it was kind of interesting um, when I was uh, a fairly young psychiatrist, just sort of out of school. Um, I was seeing a young man in in psychotherapy. And uh, while we were discussing his dream, he suddenly started crying like a little baby. And so I had enough good sense to allow him to do that. I did not interfere. And after about 10 minutes, he, we might say, came out of it. And I asked him what had just happened. And he said he had found himself um, in, a, in a baby crib, and he was crying for his mother. Then he said, being a somewhat skeptical young lawyer, he said, you know, <clears throat> I have seen photographs of myself as a baby, and um, they were always taken in a blue crib. And just a minute ago, I found myself in a white crib. So this doesn't quite make sense. So I suggested that he go home, uh, his, his parents were still alive, and uh, asked his mother, you know, how she can make sense of that. And so uh, he came back a week later for his regular appointment, and he told me to his and my astonishment that the first three months after his birth, his parents did not have 
enough money to buy him a crib and they he, he lived slept so to speak uh, in a borrowed crib and that borrowed crib was white so that was astonishing. Like, how did he know? Nobody ever talks about, you know, what color your crib was in when you, after you were born. Right. right. Um, but, you know, um, I was very well educated. I, I went to the University of Toronto. I went to Harvard. I was always taught that children before the age of three did not remember anything. So I sort of pushed this, you know, out of my mind. But then I began to have more and more experiences where people told me about very early experiences that did not make sense in terms of what we were being taught in school. And so I'm not gonna bore you with many more experiences. I'll, I'll just tell you one. Uh, Boris Brat, who is still alive, uh, a very famous, well-known conductor in Canada, uh, when he was being interviewed on the radio one day, uh, towards the end of the interview, interview, the interviewer, I guess, ran out of questions to ask. And she said to him, well, Mr. Broad, how do you think, or where do you think your career as a conductor started? And he said, in my mother's womb. So she was totally flabbergasted at that. And uh, this was before I wrote my book. <laughs> and so uh, she asked him to explain that. And he said, well, um, you know, when I was just a young conductor um, and I was conducting uh, once in a while before I even turned the page, uh, the, the, the lines that uh, the violin was playing um, seemed familiar. Like I, I, I knew what the notes would be already before I even saw them. And I had never studied that particular composition before. So then I went home, Boris said, I went home and talked to my mother. And she told me that the pieces that seemed so familiar to me were the very pieces that she, being a violin player, that she um, was playing uh, rehearsing during the time that she was pregnant with me. So when I had about three or four experiences of this nature, um, I wrote a paper. I wrote a paper uh, which was called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child. And then uh, there was a big conference in Rome in uh, 1988, I think. 19, no, 1978, sorry, 1978. There was a big conference. And so I submitted my paper and lo and behold, it was accepted. And uh, I presented my paper at the most opportune time. I mean, one of the things that I have discovered in life is you have to work hard, but you also got to have luck. And uh, I was very lucky because I presented my paper at the same, the same morning that some of the biggest lights in psychiatry and psychosomatic obstetrics, like R.D. Lang, I'm sure you're familiar with his writings, right? The Scottish psychiatrist, uh, R.D. Lang and many other people whose names I have 
forgotten, uh, we're presenting and I had my 20 minutes in the sun and there was such an excitement in the crowd in, 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 amongst the people who were there that I told them that at five o'clock after all these, um, all these talks are over, um, come to my room and we can discuss it there. And so at five o'clock, people came to my room and there was this long lineup of people trying to get in. And so I noticed that people were really excited by this idea that was really new at that time, that children prior to birth can lay down memories and can remember what happened to them. And so it was that experience in Rome at the Psychosomatic Obstetrics, the World Congress of Psychosomatic Obstetrics and Gynecology that then triggered in me an interest uh, on, on early memories, which then I parlayed into pre and perinatal psychology. Wow, what a great story, but yeah. I'm, <laughs> so so I'm, that's uh, my story. And so if, if you, if you want to ask, you know, what is the connection, yeah. let's say, between that and the embodied mind, I can tell you if that is a question on your mind. Well, let me ask you a, a different question first. Sure. I'm curious, because you had you you had some anomalous experiences, yes. and that led you to be really curious and explore this field and really create this field. Um, but there's other people who have similar anomalous experiences, and they dismiss them. What made you different in your own mind that you were like really curious and wanted to explore it, as opposed to find some concept to ex dismiss it? That, that is an incredibly good question. <laughs> um, I, I don't know whether I can answer it. Um, I have always been curious. Uh, I, I hardly ever take no for an answer. Uh, it has to make sense to me. Um, my wife and I sometimes have some discussions about that because I very often say, hey, that doesn't make any sense. And she says, well, you know, not everything makes sense. And that's true. Um, but I like to make sense of things. And, you know, I was not going to dismiss these experiences that people told me about just because, you know, scientists did not respect uh, those kinds of narratives. And so, I guess I just have this curiosity and I want to take it to the next level. You know, I want to find an explanation. Is this person lying or, you know, is there some truth to this? And if there is, how is it possible? So I'm very biologically oriented um, and I want to find out in a way, just, just like Freud always, you know, tried really to find scientific answers um, for the unconscious. So I have tried to find biological scientific explanations for things that don't sound scientific on first view. Well, thank God <laughs> that's your pride. <laughs> the whole field uh, is benefiting from that for sure. Thank you. Uh, 
you know, but you know, one of the things I think it's fascinating because you, you know you, you said biological, you're looking for a biological answer, but you, you, you know the way you discuss science in your book is is not scientism. It's no. the actual process of science. And you had asked, you had offered earlier, what, what's the transition from, uh, you know, pre-imperial psychology to this book? And, and let me have you answer that. But also we forget kind of maybe you've had a broader question on the science because you, you are so open-minded to the science from out-of-body experiences and non-ordinary states of consciousness, to, you know, to quantum biology. It's just amazing. It's like just creating a whole new yeah large comprehensive model on a map well Uh, you know that didn't come easily uh this book took seven years to write seven years Uh, i uh, i read studied closely approximately five thousand books and scientific papers and 500 of those are referenced at the back of my book this is steeped deeply, deeply in science and some of the best science. Um, and, uh, and what made me do that was my interest in memory. Because just as I told you about the young man, you know, who seemed to remember uh, the, his crib life yeah. after he was born. Well, I also had, you know, people over the years as a psychiatrist who could remember, or at least they said that they you know, they would remember uh, certain things that happened to them uh, in the womb already before birth. And so I thought to myself, well, how is that possible? Because science tells me that um, the brain continues to develop actually for at least the first three years of life. And then it continues to grow and develop. And, all, this, all the neurologists and neuroscientists in the world agreed that children cannot remember anything before the age of two uh, because the brain is just not properly developed. Also, the large tracts of, 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 of sort of um, neurons uh, are not fully developed, which is all true, which is all true. Uh, but still, you know, people remembered. So how is that possible? So then I will take you to another interesting experience that I had. In, um, in 2007, um, there was an article in Reuters Science News about a French civil servant who came into the hospital in, I think it was in Marseille. Um, and um, he came in, I, I, I forgot for what reason, but anyway, oh yes, I remember. It was a mild weakness in his left leg. He complained of a mild weakness in his left leg. So the doctors performed numerous scans of his head. What they discovered was a huge fluid filled chamber occupying most of the space in his skull, leaving little more than a thin crescent of brain tissue. Um, It was a case of hydrocephalus. That's what, you know, medical literature would diagnose as that. Literally, water on the brain. So his doctor, Dr. Lionel Foulet, was quoted as saying that the images were most unusual 
the brain was virtually absent. The patient was a married father of two children. He worked as a civil servant, apparently leading a normal life, despite having virtually no brain tissue. So once again, you know, I read this and I said to myself, how is this possible? Like, this doesn't make sense. Um, how is this possible? How can we explain this? So then I started looking into the literature, you know, and I found in the medical literature an astonishing number of documented cases of adults who as children had parts of their brain removed. Mostly it was due to epilepsy to, to start to, to, to stop epileptic seizures. And following, you know, uh, the removal of half their brains, which is called hemispherectomy, most children show not only an improvement in their intellectual capacity and in their sociability, but also apparent retention of memory, personality, and sense of humor. So, you know, what is the explanation for that? Well, what neuroscientists, neuroscientists have looked at this and their explanation is what they call neuroplasticity, that somehow other areas in the brain take over uh, the functioning. But how can they take over the functioning of, of, a, of a brain that is not there anymore? Like, you know, if you have nine tenths of the brain missing, will the one tenth of the remaining tissue take over the function of the nine tenths? Um, no, that doesn't make sense. So that was kind of the trigger to this book, The Embodied mind, uh, again, trying to find an answer to a mystery uh, that presented itself in real life. So in your seven years of doing yes. this research and explorations, you know, you, you, you talk about the embodied mind hypothesis, but what, what conclusions, maybe not final, final conclusions, but what, what conclusions or, or, or let me actually let me step back. What are some of the most uh, profound things you discovered or surprising things you discovered right. in your explorations? Because you're studying so many different fields of, of medicine. Yes. Science. Yes. yes. Well, you know, I, I, I realized when I started on this journey seven years ago, I realized that in some ways this was uh, just as um, sort of um, shattering uh, theories, uh, existing theories, as uh, my explorations of prenatal life. Um, that this was also, you know, cutting edge and probably would run up against a lot of criticism, as I did when I brought out The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. I mean, it was amazing, the, the resistance by doctors to, uh, to The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, just amazing. Whereas today, there's no resistance to that at all. It, it just has become, you know, middle ground. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not far out anymore on that score. Um, and actually, so far, I have not run into much resistance about the embodied mind either, which actually surprises me. But coming back to, you, to your question, what surprised me the most in my seven years of studying this? Well, there, there were quite a number of surprises. I was surprised by the intelligence of cells, just simple, normal 
cells in the human body, how incredibly complicated that machinery is in a human cell. I mean, it's, it's hard not to get spiritual about this really, because when you study uh, and you go digging deeper and deeper into how cells function and how the networks of cells function. Um, just, just to give you one tiny little example, uh, when one cell is diseased, other cells around it, which are not diseased, put out little tunnels, um, little filaments through which they will feed the sick cell some uh, proper nutrients, wow. uh, trying to make it better, trying, trying to help it, um, trying to bring it back to health. This is amazing. And I have pictures of that, you know? Uh, cells are just so incredibly smart. So when you have all these smart cells in your body and they're all working together, what you have created really is like a very brainy system. And so what my embodied mind theory really suggests is that we have to think of the whole body as, as a brain and as a mind, really. Uh, that this, this focus on the ensculled brain is wrong. And that we need to think of the embodied brain and the embodied mind. Uh, it's, it's, it's this, you know, uh, the intelligence of cells um, and how they vibrate as a network together. If I can perhaps give you an example, perhaps a, a, a metaphor that, that might help our listeners to think about this. Uh, I, think of the, I think of our body the way I think perhaps of musicians in an orchestra. And the musicians in an orchestra play in different sections, be they strings or woodwinds, brass, percussions, um, and so they all play together and the conductor brings the sound together. Like he makes it all sound like one sound. And I think that's how the brain operates. The brain br brings all this information that comes from the rest of the body together, orchestrates it, but it's all one unified network. That's the important thing. It's one unified. So instead of this dualism uh, that Descartes started, uh, it's really necessary for us to introduce a monism that it's all one united uh, mind brain. Yeah, I think now would be a good time to talk about some of the other, you might say, intelligence centers within the human system. I don't, I don't know how you want to frame it, but I know you're talking about, like, for instance, the bones and muscles communicate to the brain you know we have, yes. the, we have the, the enteric nervous system we have the vagal system we have yes. the brain in the gut the brain in the heart you know so if you could kind of touch upon some of these different systems within the larger human system i think that'd be great yeah well um you know um th that gets kind of complicated but i'll try my best to make it 
simple on on, on, the, on the radio. Um, well, it's not radio, it's podcast, so audio. Um, that's why in my book, I use a lot of illustrations to make it sort of easier. But what we have to realize, let's say the heart, uh, the, the two centers where there is, where you have cognition happening is the heart and the gastrointestinal, the GI tract. And what most people don't realize is that the heart is not just a pump. I mean, most people think of the heart as, as a pump. It's just pumping blood and that's all it does. It's much, 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 much more than that. Uh, the heart has something like 40,000 what they call neurites, uh, neuron-like cells. Uh, the heart also acts as as uh, the heart also produces hormones. Um, and the heart, of course, is connected by, with the vagus nerve, which is the tense cranial nerve. It's connected to the brain. And the vagus nerve also is connected to the gut, the gastrointestinal tract. So the vagus nerve carries signals from the heart and from the gut to the brain and vice versa, of course. So when a person is stressed, there might be stress hormones uh, and stress signals coming down the vagus nerve to the heart and to the gut. But what people have not realized in the past, or at least most people, including scientists have not realized is that this is a two-way system. It's not one way. Neuroscientists in the past have always thought of the brain sending signals down. So when you are stressed, you get, um, you, you get an ulcer. You get an ulcer because the brain is sending signals down, telling the gut that, you know, I'm under stress and the gut produces more acid. And so you get an ulcer. But they have not been concerned with the reverse process, which is that the heart, the gut, and the lungs also send signals to the brain and the rest of the body. So um, having a look at what the heart actually does is incredibly important because there are all these smart cells in the gut as well as in the heart uh, that can contain memories. So when we look at heart transplants, for example, you know, people have recorded for a long time that some uh, recipients of donor hearts have had changes in their personality, which dovetail with the personality as it was known in the donor. Now, once again, scientists have made fun of that and uh, referred to it, you know, in some pejorative terms. But the fact is that people have reported this and we cannot assume that everybody, you know, is just fantasizing. And so we have to look at the biology. Is this really possible? And I think it is. And so in, in my book, I present a lot of research which shows that yes, that cells can contain what I refer to as micro memories, you know, little bits of memory and when you put them all together, you get uh, a complete memory.
And so it is not surprising that some uh, people who have received a donor heart have changes. And I describe, you know, something like 10 examples of this in my book, uh, have had changes in their personality, which um, coincide with uh, the personality of the donor. Um, and the same thing can be said about the gut. You know, when people say, well, I had a gut feeling, you know, I didn't trust this person or something like that. Well, that's possible. It's possible. Um, people don't realize, for example, that serotonin, which is a very, very important neurohormone, uh, the whole idea of antidepressants nowadays, starting with Prozac, which are called SSRIs, um, serum serotonin reuptake inhibitors, are based on the fact that it has been found that a lot of depressed people don't have sufficient serotonin in their brains. So these antidepressants uh, increase the serotonin concentration in the brain. But where does the serotonin come from? Most of the serotonin actually comes from the gut. It, it does not reside in the brain. So once again, we have to look at the whole person. And that is one of the most important points, I think, that I try to make in my book, that, that we, don't, we, we don't just live above our necks. Uh, we, you know, the neck is connected to the rest of the body. The brain is connected to the rest of the body. We have to pay more attention to our bodies and perhaps less attention to the brain. That applies to Alzheimer's disease, for example, also, and many other things that I can that I can tell you about. So yeah, I definitely do want you to talk about that. Um, but you know, so you, you've talked about the, the consciousnesses or memories are distributed throughout the whole yeah. system. You've talked about at the cellular level, and then you've talked about some organ systems. You know, the heart. Yes. Such. But you also in your book get into the quantum biology. So, you know, much smaller in scale because compared to cells or even macro or, or organs or organ systems. Um, so if you could just briefly talk about how quantum biology fits into your uh, embodied mind hypothesis in general. And then if you wouldn't mind talking about how that as an idea might lead to some of the more transpersonal experiences you talk about in your book, the near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. If you wouldn't mind going down that rabbit hole. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that is very complicated. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, as, as a psychiatrist, I, I did not deal with quantum mechanics before I started searching uh, for explanations. And so when it comes to the mind, uh, I mean, there are probably a hundred books around about the mind and consciousness and free will. It's, it's a huge conundrum. It's a mystery. Uh, people approach it from many different directions. Um, and so I, I studied it and, you know, the fundamental concept of, of quantum mechanics is that elementary particles, you know, such as photons and electrons, 
possess the properties of both particles and waves. So that's where we start. And the particle and wave aspects cannot be separated. Um, rather, they complement one another. You cannot separate them. Um, the mind complements matter just the same way. That's the way I see it. Um, just as the particle aspect of matter complements its wave aspect. And consciousness can interface with the material world because matter and energy are interchangeable. So as you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of the mystery of quantum mechanics is in the fact that an observer will change the way the particles behave, right? Um, so I think that's the way the brain and the mind also work, um, which is that when we introspect, when we look inside of ourselves, we are observing our quantum mind and it opens up to us and it brings about possibilities of change so that the more a person is introspective, the more access they have to what Freudians would call the unconscious um, and the more ability they have to change. And I think that's where free will comes in. Free will comes in when you dig into yourself, when you, when you really consider all the options. And so you go from a mostly material, physical universe where your brain and your body is under, under the root, acts according to the rules of physics uh, and you enter the quantum mind uh, field where um, possibilities are infinite. And if you reach a level of introspection, um, then you gain more and more free will. You, you, you can make decisions uh, that are truly um, your own instead of perhaps making decisions that you have learned from your parents or teachers or whatever. So instead of living by rules, you live by your own internal self. Does that help? No, uh, definitely does. And I appreciate that. Next, <laughs> it's important for you to understand the multiple layers and levels. Yes. And scale. Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, it, it, go ahead, please. So, yeah. And, and, you know, so, th so that's where, you know, the mind really becomes incredibly creative and powerful uh, because when we look at phenomena such as hypnosis, for example, it's, it's all about the mind uh, over matter. And um, when we look at, at what I've been very impressed by 
is communication between people who are very, very far apart, you know, the communication at a distance, extrasensory perception, if you like, uh, where people who are very close, particularly twins, they might be thousands of miles apart. And yet when one of them um, has an accident or is very sick, the other one instantly knows it, you know? And, uh, and again, there are lots of reports on that. And I think the only way that that can be explained is through, you know, quantum mechanics. Right. Which, which is, you know, it's interesting because you, you talked about yourself as a scientist and I yes. compare and contrast scientism to science as a mm -hmm. process of exploring the world. And I love that your questions lead to further <laughs> questions, which lead to further questions, lead to further questions. Um, you know, so I, 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 that's why I with, kind of withdrew my question earlier. Do you have any final conclusions? Because I could imagine there's no going to be final conclusions on a lot of things for you because you're just going to keep inquiring and inquiring and searching. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, it struck me listening to you talk about um, at the quantum level and then the cells and such earlier, you know, in the field of somatic psychology where people work through the body to change yes. cognition and state and such, yes. you know, what you are offering people in that field is a model to understand why if I touch your, you know, your knee, your uh, memory might have rise from, you know, Absolutely. 30, that kind of stuff. Yes. So yes. because it's in your body, you know, all these memories are baked into your body and body therapists know this uh, and, and they work on it. Like, like you have just said, I mean, when I was doing sort of very deep intensive psychotherapy, I mean, sometimes when I was working with someone who was remembering their dream, uh, sorry, remembering their birth, I could smell ether in the air. Now, you know, some of your, some of your audience may turn off uh, their set at this point, but I'm just telling you the truth. I mean, this, has, this was my experience. I'm not making this up. I could smell ether and then when the person became, you know, came out of it, I asked him, you know, what sort of, what sort of anesthetic his mother had, and he didn't know, and he would go home and find out, and we would look at uh, birth records from the hospital, and she had ether. So, you know, where does, what, what is the explanation? The only explanation is that all these experiences that we have had are really contained in our bodies. They don't go away. Uh, they are there. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, they come out at the right point and then we need to work with them. Um, I think what's very important to realize is that you know we are the architects of our own lives. I mean, that's what I would really like people who read my book to realize uh, so much depends on how you think about yourself and what you think about yourself. And um, do, do we have a few minutes? Please, yes, yes. Um, there's this incredible, beautiful, beautiful little study that was done in New York on uh, 84 um, maids, um, 84 women who 
who cleaned hospitals. Um, and uh, half of the group, so that's 84, 32, so uh, 42, half of the group was told that what they did lived up to the standards of the Surgeon General for exercise. So this was done in New York. So the Surgeon General's, I don't know, standards of exercise. And the other group was not told that at all. After one month, after one month, uh, the two groups were compared. And um, the group that thought that they were exercising, when in fact they did absolutely nothing different from the other group, they continued the same work, you know, changing bed sheets and all that. The group that believed that they were exercising uh, had lower blood pressure, lost weight, lost uh, body mass um, in all kinds of ways. I have forgotten all the details, but in all kinds of ways, they were in better shape than the other group and they did nothing different. The only difference was that they believed that they were exercising. So, you know, mind. Yeah. It's, it's right there, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's in my book, the reference is there. Sorry about that. Uh, the reference is there. And uh, you can look it up. Uh, it was done in 2007, and I have uh, forgotten the reference, but it's all it's it's in my book. It's there. So we are very very much in charge of our lives. Our belief system is so important. And that's one of the things you talk about in terms of the benefits of having an embodied mind hypothesis. Yes. Can you also talk about some of the other benefits, uh, you know, for individuals, families, and the culture at large? Yes. Um, well, I think, I think the, you know, it's, it's hard to pick one over the other, but I think the big benefit is that, you know, we, we have to start to look at disease, even though it might manifest itself as heart disease or a neurological disease like Alzheimer's or ulcerative colitis in the gut. We have to look at these diseases as diseases of the whole body, the whole body mind. Just as I said, how important it is, how important your belief system is. Well, that is also part of any disease or health. If you want to be healthy, you have to think healthy. Uh, a lot of people don't. And uh, pharma, pharma, uh, pharm uh, pharmaceutical companies, for example, they're all looking at the brain, trying to find, you know, the key to Alzheimer's because everybody knows they're going to make millions of dollars if they find any kind of a drug that will cure or even prevent Alzheimer's. But we know from other studies, we know from other studies that, for example, if you have heart disease, you increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. There's a connection between diseases of the heart. Even if you have a congenital heart disease, the risks for Alzheimer's and other mental disorders such as schizophrenia uh, 
or bipolar depression increase. Why should that be? Well, you know, you know the answer. Uh, so both, you know, one of the problems with, with our whole disease um, view is that it's localized. So neurologists will only study neurons and cardiologists will only study the heart. And there are hardly, there's hardly anybody who studies both. And so we, we, need to, we need to change that, okay? And the pharmaceutical companies follow the lines of the scientists. So they are, you know, so when they want to find some kind of an answer to Alzheimer's disease, they are only looking at the brain instead of looking at how other parts of the body contribute or may even be uh, responsible for some of those diseases. So you're also calling for more of an interdisciplinary approach. Yes, to absolutely, absolutely interdisciplinary. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, there, is, um, there is a scientist by the name of Mori, M-O-R-I, in, in Rome, at the University of Rome, who has, uh, who has done studies showing that uh, how the lungs uh, affect the brain and how diseases of the lung can affect the brain. Um, there, there are studies done at uh, Tufts University outside of Boston on how uh, your spinal column uh, affects the brain and what happens in the spinal column affects the brain. So we, we need to do more studies on the, bi, you know, the bilateral effects, the, the, how signals traffic uh, travel, not only from the brain down to the rest of the body, but how signals travel from the body up to the brain. So we need to do network studies. Uh, what I'm hearing is uh, many paradigm shifts in a lot of different fields from yes. medicine, science, yes. medical school. You yes, know, yes. Uh, I, I can't Medical imagine school, psychiatric, uh, yeah. psychiatric education, all those things. Yes, exactly. So, Dr. Verney, your book, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness and Our Bodies, um, where is it available? Everywhere. <laughs> uh, Amazon, of course, and bookstores. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's on Amazon. Uh, Amazon CA in Canada and Amazon.com in the United States. Uh, it uh, at, at one point it was the number one, um, the number one in neuroscience. Uh, it oscillates. It goes up and down, but it's uh, it's doing very well. Excellent. Well, well, hopefully the listening audience to this interview will push it over the edge. <laughs> yes. Can you tell me when it will be out? Yeah, uh, probably within a week from this recording. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you for a great discussion. I just really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Dr. Verney. And let me encourage people to check out your book, but also if you wouldn't mind plugging your own website because you yes. want people to be able to listen to other talks you've given and interviews you've done and things you've written. Yes, my, my website is trverneymd.com. Great. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, thank Dr. you Appreciate your it time. Pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you.
बाय बाय